This is Mark, who is the pen for Peter. He's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. These are the words that he pens. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid." Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our great God stands forever. You may be seated. Well, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, they were alarmed in our text. As you look at your outline this morning, I don't want you to be alarmed. Uh, there are more points there than normal, but we will clip through them, hopefully, at a, uh, a rapid pace. encourage you to have your pen and paper handy. I think you'll retain more if you take notes. If you are, number one is this. We see the grief of the crucifixion. The grief of the crucifixion. If you've got your Bible there on your lap, direct your eyes back to verses 1 through 3. When the Sabbath was passed, three ladies, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices... Why? So they might go and anoint Jesus. The time frame here, very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were conversing with one another, and they were saying, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? We see the grief of the crucifixion. Remember, friends, that Jesus was crucified on Friday morning at 9 a.m., about the third hour. Jesus was crucified. He died Friday afternoon about 3 p.m. That is the ninth hour. If you were here with us last week, we studied Joseph of Arimathea who scrambled to get Jesus' lifeless body down from the cross so that he might prepare him for burial. This all had to be done in a very timely manner because the sun was setting and it would soon be Sabbath. And so Joseph... Joseph purchased a linen shroud. Nicodemus, accompanying him, brought a large quantity of spices, and together they wrapped the body of Jesus, and they laid him in the tomb before rolling the large stone against its entrance. All while Mary, the mother of, or Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, Joseph watched from a distance. This is all taking place in a, in a very hurried manner as the sun is setting. They're, pro- they're trying to prepare Jesus' body before the Sabbath because no work could be done on the Sabbath. And here you have these wonderfully devoted, loving ladies that are looking on from a distance. 
We meet those same ladies again this morning in our text. It is now Sunday morning. It's the day after the Sabbath. This was the earliest that Mary and Mary could get to Jesus' tomb to prepare His body. You see, the Sabbath was technically over at sundown on Saturday, but there would not have been adequate light to prepare Jesus' body until Sunday morning. Mark tells us that these ladies don't wait around. They left their homes early. They walked through the dark streets of Jerusalem as the sun began to to catapult over the the horizon. I imagine uh, much of their walk was in relative silence. These women were distraught. They were grief-stricken over the death of their Savior. Over the death of the one who they thought was their Messiah. So walking through the city streets early in the morning, those quiet streets before the sun rose on their way to the tomb, I just imagine much of their walk being relatively silent. These ladies were broken. They were going to the tomb of the man that they believed to be the Messiah, the man for whom they had left all other things behind. They were going to the tomb of the one who promised life, but who now himself was dead. They were also concerned about the huge stone that covered the door of the tomb. And how in the world are these ladies? They, they watched it be rolled in front of the tomb. Uh, as Joseph, J- Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus left, and they're considering how in the world are we going to move that tomb? How would we ever gain access to Jesus' body? This stone probably weighed several hundred pounds at best. And so they're concerned. They're broken over the death of Jesus, but they're concerned because in their love and in their devotion, they want to go finish the job that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus probably had to hastily wrap up. And because they love Jesus so deeply, they want to go and finish the job. They want to do it well. Broken already, now they're also concerned. Their brokenness is compounded by their concern about how in the world they're even going to gain access to Jesus' body. Yet they proceed, and they carry along by their tender mission that of finishing the preparations for the burial of the body of Christ. We see the grief of the crucifixion looming over these ladies. Secondly, we see the glory of of the resurrection. The glory of the resurrection. Look back at your Bible there and find verses 4 through 8. And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large, and entering the tomb, a young man was sitting there on the right side. He was dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he, the young man, said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go and tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. They were afraid. And so we see the first movement of the text this morning, the the grief of the crucifixion, but now we move to the glory of the resurrection. The glory of the resurrection. As these ladies came within sight of the tomb, they were astounded to see that that very stone that concerned them just moments before in their journey had been rolled away. 
And Mark doesn't give us this detail. Other gospel writers do, but they saw the Roman guards also lying like dead men around the mouth of the tomb. I mean, this would have been a sight, friends. Seeing this, they ran into the tomb and they looked in only to find that the body of Jesus was not there. You see, their first concern had been replaced by a second concern. The first concern was, how in the world are we going to move the stone? Oh, now the stone is moved. Now Jesus' body that we assumed would be there is no longer there. What fear must have gripped these ladies' hearts? Perhaps they feared that the Jewish rulers or the Romans had taken Jesus' body to prevent his disciples from faking his resurrection. Maybe they suspected that grave robbers had taken the body and would use it in some way to exploit Jesus. Whatever their thoughts, whatever their concerns might have been, we don't know for sure, but these concerns were short-lived because suddenly these these women noticed a young man sitting in the tomb. Sitting in the tomb. Other gospel writers tell us that there are two men. We know that these aren't just men. These are angels. Other gospel writers write that there are two in number. Mark writes that there are only one. There is only one. And it's at places like this when we're studying Scripture that we think, well, why the difference? Why the difference in the telling of the story? Is this an apparent contradiction? Should we be nervous about the authority and the sufficiency of Jesus' revealed word to us from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22? Friends, you should not. There's an easy explanation here. Uh, Just like oftentimes where other gospel writers would write that there were two men who were possessed by a demon. And one gospel writer writes there was one man who was possessed by a demon. The same thing takes place here. What Mark is doing is he's simply focusing on one of the individuals. Most likely the most prominent figure. That's all that's taking place. Uh, Mark is likely focusing in on the most prominent figure. And so he notes one, one young man. One divine being. One angel. I want you to look here at the angel's radiance. You'll find that there on your outline this morning. The women saw an angel in human form who told them of the resurrected Jesus and showed them the empty tomb. Mark says that these women were alarmed. Alarmed. The Greek word there is ekthambeo. They were alarmed. This is the only place in the New Testament that this particular Greek verb is used and it means to be awestruck with terror. These women were terrified and rightly so because Luke tells us that this young man wore dazzling apparel. Dazzling apparel. apparel, Radiant white robes such that Mary uh, and Mary were afraid and they bowed their head not even to look at the angel. They were so terrified. But we see something else about this angel. We see not only his radiance, we also see his reassurance. What words this angel speaks to these terrified women. The angel reassures these women. He paints a contrast between what Jesus was and what Jesus is. Jesus was crucified beyond all doubt. That means he was dead, but now he is risen. He's not just resuscitated, he has been resurrected. 
Don't focus on what Jesus was. Let me tell you what Jesus is. He is not here. He is risen. See the empty tomb. See the empty tomb. We see the angel's reassurance of these ladies. Write this down if you're taking notes. We see first the reassurance of peace. The reassurance of peace. Look at verse 6. You'll find this short phrase. Do not be alarmed. These women were terrified. They were awestruck. Exambeo. And this divine angel tells them, do not be alarmed. Do not be alarmed. Nothing will make the Christian lighter on his or her feet. That is, more ready and prepared to move in the battle and for the sake and cause of Christ than the confidence that comes along with peace. Specifically, the peace of God. The peace of God. Do not be alarmed. The peace of God. It is the believer's sure-footedness. What does this peace with God mean for me? Uh, Let's just uh, tease out this word here for a few moments together. We see this angel reassuring these ladies with a reassurance of peace. Do not be alarmed. What does peace with God mean for us? Obviously, the angel was giving these these women a sense of peace in the moment, but the peace in the moment comes from the overarching reality that there is peace with God. Through Jesus Christ, the resurrected Savior. What does the peace of God mean for me? Well, it means a number of things. It means no more running from Him in rebellion. He offers terms of peace. There are not many terms of peace. There is one term of peace. And it's that you must come through Christ, the resurrected Savior. There is no other way. But it means that there is no more running from Him in rebellion. It also means that there's no more striving for His favor. In Christ we have all of God's favor. Do not be alarmed. Be at peace. Be at peace. No more striving for His favor. It means no more approaching Him in fear. Remember year after year after year the high priest approaches the Holy of Holies and he does so with a sense of fear and trepidation. As he enters into the presence of the Holy God, that veil has been torn. It was torn when Jesus uttered the words in John chapter 19. It is finished as he hung there on the cross. Redemption is finished. It's penalty paid in full. Therefore, there's no more approaching God in fear. Matter of fact, the writer of Hebrews tells us we can approach the throne of grace with confidence in our time of need. Peace with God also means no more guilt before His divine bar. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. Peace with God means there is no longer condemnation, no longer guilt before His divine bar if we're found in Christ Jesus. It also means there's no more fear in life itself, or there shouldn't be. There should not be sinful fear when it comes to life itself. Jesus told His disciples, take heart. Yes, there's trouble in the world, but I've overcome the world. My peace I give you. My peace I leave with you. It means no fear of being snatched from His hand. 
Once you're in Jesus, having been given the Holy Spirit, the deposit guaranteeing the inheritance that is to come, there is no being snatched from His hand. There is no losing what Ephesians 1 tells us we've been given in Him as we've been adopted into His family by repentance and faith. No one can snatch us from His hand. If you're looking for a a good quiet time chapter this week, let me encourage you, John chapter 10, that whole glorious, wonderful chapter that deals with Jesus being the great shepherd of the sheep. No one can snatch them out of my hand. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Those are the words of the great shepherd. And then lastly, there's no fear in death. There's no fear in death. John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. Yes, for those who are in Christ, you will die, yet you will live. And you will be more alive then than you ever have been now. Peace. Do not be alarmed. The God we serve is a God of peace in Jesus. Outside of Jesus, there is no peace. Outside of Jesus, there is no comfort. There is fear. Outside of Jesus, there is no forgiveness. There is only condemnation, guilt, and shame. But in Christ, there is peace. Abiding peace. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me from life's first cry to final breath. Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from His hand till He returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I stand and there's peace. What a, what a word of reassurance to these alarmed ladies. Do not be alarmed. Secondly, we see the reassurance of power, the reassurance of power. I find this phrase in verse 6. The angel says, He is risen. He is not here. He is risen. He is not here. This is the reassurance of the power of God. Friends, the propitiatory propitiatory ministry of Jesus, the, the sacrificial ministry of Jesus, that which took place on the cross was finished forever at the cross. But do not think for a New York second that the ministry of Jesus ended at the cross or at the resurrection. Yes, Jesus' sacrificial work is completed. It is finished, John 19. But don't think for a second that Jesus is not still working this very moment in heaven. Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, he says, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved, here's the kicker, by His life. How much more shall we be saved by His life? When we consider the ministry of Jesus, we see that His ministry has three facets. Okay, the, the ministry of Jesus has three facets. At His first coming, He functioned as a prophet. The one who represented God to His people. At Jesus' second coming, He will reign as an eternal King. But presently, right now, 
The resurrected Christ functions as our great high priest. At this very moment, he is functioning in heaven as our great high priest who represents the people of God to God himself. The prophet represents God to the people. The great high priest represents the people before God. That is the ministry of the resurrected Christ right now today. Right now today. Let me give you some specific ways uh, that Jesus ministers as our great high priest today. How does he minister to us believers as our great high priest today? Uh, Write this down. Number one, he reigns over you. He reigns over you. He is seated at the right hand of God. This is a picture of a triumphant king resting in his victory. He's seated. His work is finished. You'll know if you've studied the Old Testament at all that the Old Testament priests never sat down. Why? Well, it's because their work was never finished. Their work was never complete. Matter of fact, the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 10 speaks about this speaks about these high priests and says that every high priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly over and over and over again the same sacrifices which can never take sins away. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God. Waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. This very moment, if you are in Christ Jesus, he is reigning over you. He reigns over you. After making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. He reigns over you. Secondly, He speaks through you. He speaks through you. Again, the writer of Hebrews tells us that long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers. God spoke to our ancient fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. God is now speaking through His Son. Now Jesus preached the Gospel while He was here on this earth. In every town, in every city, in in every village, in every synagogue, Jesus went preaching the glorious message of the Gospel. That there is forgiveness of sins if there is repentance from sin. That you can know God, that you can have peace with God. That you can be justified. That all of Christ's righteousness can be credited to your otherwise bankrupt account. That was the message that Jesus preached everywhere He went. That was the same message that Jesus told His disciples to continue to preach upon His ascension. We'll see that next week. Go. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Preach the gospel. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, you go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you, and surely I'll be with you to the very end. We see peace there again because there's peace in His abiding presence until the end. Jesus preached the gospel 
He called his disciples to preach the gospel. And in every successive generation, we are called to preach the gospel. And when you preach the gospel, it is as if, not in a mystical way, but it is as if the risen Lord Jesus Christ is speaking through you. Now, this whole idea of the risen Lord speaking through you has been absolutely murdered within some denominations who have taken extravagant liberty with what is a biblical reality. When you preach the gospel, the unadulterated biblical gospel, it is as if the risen Lord Jesus Christ speaks through you. He reigns over you. He speaks through you. Third, write this down. He mediates on your behalf. He mediates on your behalf. A mediator intervenes between two individuals to restore peace. Again, we're back to that theme. As our high priest, Jesus mediates between sinful man and a holy God. Jesus is our mediator in that He is our perfect once-for-all sacrifice that is acceptable to God. There is no other sacrifice that's acceptable. The sacrifice of your accomplishments is not acceptable. The sacrifice of your status is not acceptable. The sacrifice of your bank account is not acceptable. The sacrifice of Jesus is acceptable. If you offer anything else, you'll be devastated. Because it's not enough. It's not enough. Not even the blood of goats and bulls and rams. It's not enough. It's not enough. But Jesus is our mediator in that His perfect once-for-all sacrifice is acceptable to God. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, For there is one God, there is one mediator between God and man, uh, men, the man, Christ Jesus. Jesus mediates on our behalf. Fourth, He advocates for you. Jesus is your advocate if you're a believer. Why do Christians need an advocate? Well, Christians need an advocate because there's an adversary. That's why we need an advocate. We have an adversary, the devil or Satan, who constantly accuses us before God. And so if Satan is the prosecuting attorney, Christ and the Holy Spirit are the legal advocates or the defense attorneys. Jesus Christ makes defense for us because we're found in Him. We're found in Him. He is the only one who can defend, counsel, and comfort us. John writes this in 1 John, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, does anyone? Yeah, without exception. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Advocate's a legal term. As a matter of fact, it's actually derived from the Greek word paraclete, uh, which means to come alongside. The Holy Spirit is actually referred to as the paraclete, uh, the one who comes alongside us. And so in legal terms, the advocate is the defender or the counselor who comes to aid his client before the judge. Likewise, Jesus becomes the advocate for every person who confesses their sin and their desperate need for him as their Lord and Savior. He becomes their righteous defense attorney. He becomes for them a perfect advocate who always gains acquittal. 
for those who trust in him. He's your advocate. He's your advocate. And there are two aspects to Jesus' advocacy ministry. Maybe you can write these in the margin if you still have white space. Two ways that Jesus advocates for us or Jesus represents us legally. Number one is that he does represent us legally. And number two is that he represents us experientially. How does Jesus advocate for me? Well, he represents me legally and he represents me experientially. Jesus stands as the advocate between our repentant hearts and the law. If Jesus' blood has been applied to our lives through faith and repentance, then he pleads our case before the righteous judge. And so he represents us in a legal sense. But secondly, he represents us in an experiential sense. Another aspect that makes Jesus a compassionate advocate is that he has experienced life in this world as well. He has been tempted in every way, just as we have, yet he is without sin. He's been rejected, overlooked, misunderstood, and abused. He doesn't just represent us in a theoretical sense. He represents us before the Father experientially, legally and experientially. He lived the life we live, yet without succumbing to the peril of sin. And so he can represent us experientially. Number five, and last here, he intercedes for me. How does Jesus, the great high priest, minister to you today, the resurrected Christ? His work did not finish at the cross. His his sacrificial work was finished there, but his ministry is not finished. And in these ways, lastly, he intercedes for me. Jesus serves as our great high priest. Not only does the Holy Spirit intercede for us, we see that in Romans chapter 8, but Jesus Christ also intercedes for us. Again, the writer of Hebrews tells us that in Hebrews chapter 7. He says that he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. He always lives to make intercession for them. Here's a question worth pondering. What does the glorified Christ pray for you? You ever considered that? He always lives to make intercession for you, his child. What does the resurrected Christ pray for you? What does he pray for us? Well, it's certain that every need of the believer and every grace required to complete redemption are brought within the scope of Jesus Christ's intercession for you. His ministry to us continues daily. Daily. John Murray, a wonderful pen who has now passed away, once wrote these words. He says, speaking about Jesus' intercession for us, nothing serves to verify the intimacy and the constancy of the Redeemer's preoccupation with the security of His people. Nothing assures us of His, of his unchanging love more than the tenderness with which His heavenly priesthood bespeaks us, particularly 
as it comes to expression in his intercession. As he prays for you. As he represents you before the Father. As your mediator and your advocate. He reigns over you. As you preach the gospel, it is as if he speaks through you. The resurrected, risen Lord Jesus Christ is very busy and active today. He's alive and well. He's seated. Victory accomplished. But don't think he's not working. Don't think for a second he's not working. Well, we saw the angel, back to the angel now. Uh, We saw the angel's reassurance of peace. We saw the angel's reassurance of power. And then we see the angel's reassurance of promise. Promise. Let me give you another P word that came to me early this morning. Write down presence next to that. Promise slash presence. Look at this third reassurance here. Find verse 7 in your Bible there and find this specific phrase. You will see him just as he told you. You will see him just as he told you. What reassuring words. Remember, these are the same women who are walking in the wee hours of the morning to the tomb broken. They are going to anoint the dead body of Jesus because they love him, because they're so devoted to him. And now to learn that they will see him again, that he is risen, he's not here. You seek one who is not here, but you will see him again, just as he told you. What reassurance. What reassurance. And not only will they see him again, friends, if you know Jesus, you will see him again. Actually, let me rewind that statement. You will see him again, whether you're a Christian or not. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. But if you are a believer, we have that blessed hope of seeing him again and hearing those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. We will see him again. Not in Galilee as he revealed himself to the disciples and these ladies. We will see him in glory. We'll see him first of all as he appears in the clouds. Then we will see him returning in glory Then we will see him ruling this earth as the King of kings and the Lord of lords in the thousand-year millennial kingdom. And then we will see his face forever, forever in the new heavens and in the new earth. And even in the new heavens and in the new earth, when we see him for eternity days without end, we will be reminded as we gaze upon his wounds that he is our sacrificial substitute. That he is the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. And we will cry out, glory, glory, glory. To the Lord God Almighty, who is and was and is to come. We will forever be reminded of his sacrifice at Calvary. But we will see him again, not just in Galilee, but in glory. Let's conclude this morning by looking at the angel's request and the women's response, specifically verses 7 and 8. Find them there in your Bible. The angel told these ladies, but go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee, 
And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The angel gave these ladies a message that they were to deliver. Have you been given a message to deliver? The angel gave these ladies a message that they were to deliver. Perhaps we might even think of this message as an invitation because through this message, the disciples were invited to come and meet with Jesus in Galilee. This shows that the invitations of Jesus are always filled with grace. Friends, remember that the disciples had completely failed Jesus. They had fled They had left him to suffer and die alone. Jesus had every right to wash his hands of his disciples. But in grace, he extended an invitation to meet with them. Do you see that? I love that. Notice also that Jesus made special mention of Peter. We see the disciples, right? There were the twelve. There were the eleven after Judas. And then there were the inner three, James, Peter, and John. Of the inner three, James, Peter, and John, Peter was Jesus' right-hand man. And so at the conclusion here, Jesus makes special mention of Peter. Some teachers say that Jesus distinguished Peter because he was separate from the rest of the disciples in the sense that he was no longer among them. But this probably isn't the case. Instead, I think Jesus distinguished Peter because Jesus had a special hope, a special forgiveness, and a special restoration for the one who had denied him the most. For the one who had denied him the most. And friends, I can tell you this morning that the same hope, the same forgiveness, and the same restoration is available to you. The one who has also denied him. The one who is also in need of great mercy and grace. Jesus is still inviting sinners to himself. Friends, let me ask you this question. Have you come? Jesus is still inviting sinners to himself. Have you come by by faith and repentance? Have you come? Jesus invites the weak and the weary. He invites the castaway and the runaway. He invites the lost and the lonely, the broken and the ashamed. All you need is to feel your need of Him. That's what you need. You need to feel your need of Him. Listen to the words of this old beloved hymn, Come, ye weary, heavy laden, bruised and broken by the fall. If you tarry, if you wait until you're better, you will never come at all. Not the righteous, not the righteous sinners Jesus came to call. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness He requires is to feel your need of Him. This He gives you, this He gives you. Tis the Spirit's rising beam. All you need to fly to Jesus is to understand your need for Him. That you're hopeless and helpless apart from Him. Well, Mary and her companions went out from the tomb. Matter of fact, Mark tells us that that they fled from the tomb for fear and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The Greek word for astonished here is ecstasis. It's where we get our English word ecstasy. They were filled with trembling and ecstasy, filled with fear. And so they fled and said nothing to anyone. 
Friends, let me let you know here, this doesn't mean that they fled and made no report of the resurrection. It doesn't mean that they fled and disobeyed. We know that's plainly not the case because in our text for next week, we'll see that they went and proclaimed the message that the angel had given them. Mark chapter 16, verse 11. So it doesn't mean that they, that they fled and made no report of the resurrection. Rather, what it means is that they left the scene of the empty tomb and they did so not discussing it among themselves. In other words, they, 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 they didn't try to match their stories or line their stories all up. They simply went and made report to the disciples just as the angel had instructed them to do. Friends, this is obedience. And it's obedience in the face of confusion and fear. And obedience is still required in the midst of confusion and fear. Have you obeyed? Are you obeying? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this glorious text this morning. Uh, what, what wonderful truths there are here. This is a, a gold mine, a, a mine of gems for us uh, as we study this passage, this text. Father, we thank you for the glorious hope that we have in the knowledge of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, the captain of our salvation. He is risen, he is not here. And Lord, we have great hope knowing that we will see him again. We wait for that day when Jesus appears in the clouds and calls us home. When the church leaves this Genesis 3 fallen world and goes to be with Christ. And we will see him as he reigns over the tribulation period. We will see him, we will be with him as he reigns supreme as king in the thousand year millennial uh, kingdom. And we will see him for days without end in eternity future. Now, Father, that is the great hope that we have. In the middle of the already and the not yet, from today until the day that we either breathe life's final breath or until Jesus steps in and returns and calls us home, I pray that you would call us to be faithful just like these ladies have uh, exemplified for us uh, in our text this morning. And Lord, I pray that if there's any person here this morning uh, who has not come to you in faith and repentance, would they know that you are still calling sinners today, that you are still inviting the broken and the lost to come and receive forgiveness full and free today, even Peter and the Peters among us. Lord, we love you and we thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.